All right. Good morning. It has been a bit since we've been together and we've had a Bible study, but I'm excited to be back. And I feel slightly underprepared this morning just because we've been traveling a lot during the holidays and it's been very busy, but I'm excited nonetheless. And we're going to first review a little bit of what we talked about the last time we had this lesson, which I can't even honestly remember. It was probably three weeks ago, but we talked about the timing of the rapture. And the different views about it. Now, the main ones that I want to look at today are the pre-trib view and the pre-wrath view. Now, the pre-wrath view is a relatively recent belief. So, there's a good chance you've been in church your whole life and never heard of the pre-wrath view. You may have heard of the mid-trib view, the post-trib view, but never heard of the pre-wrath view. But it's become a very uh, nuanced you could say sophisticated way of saying that we're taken out before the wrath, but the wrath doesn't commence until about three quarters of the way through that seven year period that we know as the tribulation, we call the tribulation. So they'll say we are not saved from the entire tribulation. We're saved from the wrath portion. Now, the reason this is pretty creative, you could say, I think it's absolutely wrong. But the reason it's creative is because they do not identify the whole period as a period of God's wrath. So they'll look at these verses like 1 Thessalonians 5, which say we are not appointed to wrath and say, we agree with that. Now, your traditional mid-trib or post-trib person would say, oh, well, wrath there refers to eternal wrath. It's not really talking about uh, wrath specific to a time period on earth. So that's how they avoid it, which is very disingenuous. I mean, it's clearly talking about a specific time period on earth there, but the pre-wrath view will agree with the pre-tribber and say, sure, that is talking about a specific time on earth, but it's talking about a portion of Daniel's 70th week and not the whole thing. Now, again, I think they're wrong, but this is something that we need to be aware of because I have run into people who hold this view. It's not a big deal. This is not some break fellowship with anybody over. In fact, um, I'm okay with somebody believing this, even though I think that they're wrong. I think that this is something we can have, you know, civil debate about, but there are some people who make a really big deal out of this. Like I'm not going to name names, but I found some people online who dedicated entire ministries and websites to this subject that they are very, um, what's the word? I, yes. Vehement is the right word. Uh, they make it a bigger issue than it really is. Um, they think that pre-tribbers are spoon feeding their churches with this comfort, you know, like you're comforting people and telling them they're not going to be here when they will be here. Exactly. Which is interesting right there. You're right. It says we're supposed to comfort one another, but they'll say we need to be preparing ourselves for the worst time period the world's ever seen. Yes. We'll be kept from some of it, the worst of it, but there's going to be a lot of bad stuff that goes down and we need to be ready for it. So they're, they have this passion, uh, so to speak, to prepare the church. Um, but it doesn't come across as very loving to me. It comes across as very hateful. Pre-tribbers can be hateful too. Uh, I mean, I went to school with a lot of people that didn't agree with me, and I very strongly believe what I do. I'm a very strong believer in the pre-trib rapture. However, if someone disagrees with me, I'm not going to call them a heretic. Okay, this is this is not this is not like a tier one uh, level of doctrine here, you know. But anyways, let's talk about um, how we can pinpoint when the rapture takes place. And it has to do with the formatting, okay, the arrangement of the book of Revelation. 
So if you look up here on my slides, um, this is basically how Revelation is divided up. Now, Revelation is a very intimidating book to most Christians. In fact, every Christian that I've talked about that's not really done any study on this. And by the way, churches generally don't do studies in Revelation. They don't. Um, I've had tons of students that said I've never been told about this. Uh, they've been in Sunday school. They're, they're in youth groups and they're curious about it. I had one student, this one young lady, and she was like, I want you to tell me all about revelation because I ask questions about it and no one really wants to answer my questions. And so it's a really important topic, but because there's so many different views, um, or maybe there's a lot of ignorance about it, people just stay clear of it altogether. But when you divide up the book, take the whole book and divide it up, it's really not that complicated. Now, the specifics of each seal and trumpet, generally they're interpreted for you. Like it tells you what's going to happen with each one. But as far as the general arrangement, it's pretty simple. You can see for yourself. So chapters one through three are all church age. Okay, so seven letters written to seven different churches. And these churches are types of different uh, kinds of churches, different struggles, of course. And of course, you can find these parallel in any given time period. Like there are people in uh, certain countries, many countries of the world that are being persecuted. And so that would be um, like one of the churches in this section that is dealing with persecution. Um, and then you have other churches that are depicted as being, uh, you know, sort of not lukewarm, but passionless. Like they'll, you know, nitpick about doctrine. And so they'll have a name that they're alive and that they're, you know, godly and they're faithful to the book, but they've, that's, that's one. They lost their first love. Um, I think it's Smyrna. Um, in particular, I'm thinking about Smyrna or Sardis. Okay. So excuse me for my lapse of memory on that. But, uh, one of these churches is depicted as being very cold yet on the outside, they look good. And there are a lot of churches where, you know, they have maybe good statements of faith and, um, they have lots of Bible study but they seem lifeless. They don't have the fellowship. Okay. It, it seems like a very bare bones sort of church. And then you have lukewarm churches that compromise and they're obsessed with the world and they just want people preaching to them what they want to hear. And that's like the Laodicean church. And then you have the church of Philadelphia. Those are the people that are standing strong under temptation and they're taking the gospel to the world. And you have really good churches like that around too. And we wish all of them were like that, but, um, these churches can exist side by side, but they also picture certain periods, I believe, in the church age. And we're going to talk about these churches separate from what we're doing on Sunday. On Sunday, we're starting in chapter four. When we finish this up, we probably got about two more Sundays on this particular series here. Then we're going to jump into a verse by verse of Revelation, and we're going to start in chapter four. And this may seem odd, but chapter four is the beginning of the future section of Revelation. So there are different sections of the book. It's it's mainly divided into the first three, which are about the church age and their types of different periods of the church, different ages, if you will. And then you get to chapter four and it's after the rapture. So we're going to start our study on Sundays after the rapture, because obviously as rapture ready Christians, we want to know what to expect, what to be looking for. Obviously, we believe as pre-tribulational believers that we're going to be in heaven, but we also want to be able to warn people. We want to have a good understanding of prophecy so we can share it with other people and open their eyes up to the reality that Jesus is coming soon. But on Wednesday nights or Friday nights, uh, we will be talking about those letters to the churches. So that's chapters one through three. Chapters four and five picture my favorite section of Revelation, and that's the throne room scene. 
So this is from the perspective of Christians, you've already won. You're in heaven. The rapture has taken place in chapter four. You see the throne of God. You see the cherubim. You, you see the elders and they have crowns on their heads because at this point, the Bema seat judgment has happened. Rewards have been given out and everything's ready. Okay. So we're ready to reign with Christ on the earth, but we haven't come down yet. So this is like the celebratory uh, feast in heaven before we come down to earth and God settles things. And so chapters four and five are amazing. It, it pictures Jesus taking this scroll. We'll talk about what that scroll represents. Uh, it represents a number of things, actually. I don't think it's just, you know, one particular explanation. I think there's a number of themes involved, but he takes this scroll, this title deed to creation. Uh, he has right to it because he's fulfilled the law perfectly, obeyed all the commandments of God, redeemed the world, and he breaks these seals. Okay. And, and those seals, the seventh one in particular, is going to lead to the trumpets, and then the trumpets lead to the bowls, and then the bowls culminate with Jesus coming back at the Battle of Armageddon. Okay, so in a way, this cascade effect is an easy way of looking at the book. So if you understand that the whole book is revolved around, okay, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls, that's basically the bulk of what you're going to read about in chapters 6 through 19. So most of the book is describing the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. The judgments. It's pretty simple, ain't it? So the tribulation period, lots of judgment happening during that time. There are a couple of parenthetical chapters that kind of take you aside and say, okay, let's stop from talking about judgment. Look at what God's doing. He's sealing these witnesses. Okay, let's stop talking about the judgment. Look at how the beast is going to rise to power. So there are these gaps there where it'll give you a little bit more information before moving on to the next judgment. But in general, it's divided up into the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Uh, then you get to chapter 20. Um, this is after Armageddon. Armageddon's described in chapter 19. Uh, chapter 20 gives us a very teeny bit of information about the millennium. And the question is why? Why is it that if you read the New Testament, you get almost nothing about the millennium? Now, you have enough to prove that it's taught. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul teaches it. He says that when Christ comes, he's got to put all enemies under his feet, and then he gives the kingdom back. So this putting his enemies under his feet is a process. It's not occurring right now, by the way. Okay, he's waiting until that time. But when it happens, it's going to be step by step. Even throughout the millennium, as we talked about in the past, there will be some people who rebel. I don't know how many, um, but there will be some people who rebel throughout the period. And at the end, there'll be one final rebellion. When the devil uh, leads what you would call Gog Magog 2, okay? You, know, you kind of have World War One and World War Two. You have a Gog Magog 1 and a Gog Magog 2. But um, this process of putting the enemies under his feet, that is referring to the millennium. But Paul doesn't go into all the details about it. Um, John doesn't either. He basically says that the church, Christians who are glorified in their new bodies, will reign with Christ. That's all that it says. It doesn't tell you really anything else. It doesn't talk about the millennial temple. It doesn't talk about the sacrifices in the temple. It doesn't talk about a descendant of David who's going to sort of act as a representative of the people. But this representative is not Christ, but a descendant of David, according to the flesh. You don't get into all those details. If you want to know that, you got to read the Old Testament. The Old Testament was written to the Jews. The millennium is very Jewish. It's, it's a time of Jewish prominence. So if you want to know more details about the millennium, read the Old Testament. The New Testament is mainly about the church. Now, of course, it's not a replacement. It's not like, okay, now it's the church, no more Jews. There's this parallel effect that Paul talks about, and we'll get to that perhaps today, that you have the church and you have Israel, and they kind of overlap. There are some Jews who are part of the church, 
but there's a distinct um, teaching about that in the New Testament. You got Israel as God's physical chosen people, and then you got the spiritual family of God, and that's the church. Well, since Revelation is written to Christians predominantly, not necessarily Jewish Christians, but just Christians in general, um, it doesn't really talk about the Jewishness of the millennium. It tells us what we're going to expect. So we have the rapture. Okay, we're taken up. There's the Bema Sea judgment. All the rewards are given. Um, we're in heaven watching all the stuff that's happening. Okay, as judgments being poured out on earth, we're not there, but we know what's happening. We see it happening. Um, that's how it's described in Revelation. And then we come back and we reign with him. Okay, it's pretty simple. And then it tells us what we really need to know. What do we as members of the church really look forward to? I look forward to the millennium, yes. Okay, because it's a deliverance from all that I'm dealing with now. However, is that really what I'm looking forward to as much as the new Jerusalem? I'm looking forward to the new Jerusalem more, y'all. Because in the new Jerusalem, it's not church Israel. It's one bride, one family. Um, it's not, you got Israel as the distinct people of God. And then the nations, you have the peoples of God. Like it's, we're all there. Yes, we have ethnic identities, but we're all part of the family of God. And, and you know, we're not on one level higher than the other. Uh, the real distinction at that time will be overcoming church age believers and carnal believers who don't receive the same rewards, but are still there all the same. So the new Jerusalem is really what we're looking forward to because that's the eternal state, isn't it? There'll be no interruptions, no rebellions, no devil coming back and trying to mess things up again. So um, that's where it all ends in chapters 20 through 22, the final judgment and then the eternal state. So there you have it, five sections of the book. Okay, if you can remember those five, it's not quite as intimidating. Now the details, that is, okay, require more study. But in general, the book of Revelation, I think, is a lot less intimidating than people think if they just go into it knowing some of the basic um, information that I've given you. And so now let's turn in our Bibles uh, to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And I'm going to read this verse to you. And I'm going to ask you what I've asked a number of people. What do you think of when you read this verse? Because to me, it's all about plain sense. If you know the word of God and you're familiar with the writings of the New Testament, I believe they inform one another. Scripture interprets scripture. If you're familiar enough with the New Testament, then when you read this verse, certain things are going to pop out at you and you're going to automatically think of something that I think that John wants you to think of. And so in Revelation chapter four, verse one, this is after the church age, no more churches are written to at this point. Okay. The letters are finished. Laodicea is the final letter. And isn't that very fitting? The lukewarm church is the final in the sequence. And I think that's what we're seeing today. The lukewarm. We are there. Absolutely, Christy. We are in the lukewarm church. That doesn't mean everybody's lukewarm. It just means that the general characterization of our time period for Christians all over the world is very lukewarm. And evangelical used to be something you were proud of. You know, like I'm an evangelical. That means I don't compromise. That means I keep it straight doctrinally. This is what the Bible says. However, today evangelical means nothing. I just want y'all to know that. That if you go around saying, I'm an evangelical, it is meaningless. It was not meaningless 30, 40 years ago. It is today. If you go around saying, I'm a fundamentalist, that's a little bit more specific. Okay. They will not confuse you with a, a doctrinal liberal. If you call yourself a fundamentalist, they're not going to think, oh, they're, they're liberal. There's even a possibility of that. Yes. They, they might think that you are very legalistic because there is a bad association with denominations or churches who call themselves fundamental. And then they make lots of small things that are not fundamental, fundamental issues. 
um, you know, whether or not women should wear pants or skirts, you know, like that sort of stuff is not fundamental, but fundamentalists who get the doctrine right on a lot of things like substitutionary atonement, they'll, they'll get the salvation right. But then when it comes to these other things, they, they make them a lot bigger than they ought to be. So fundamentalist has got a bad connotation. Evangelical today could be theological liberal. I mean, it could be anything, right? I mean, you could say I'm an evangelical, but I support the LGBTQ uh, movement. And I don't believe in substitutionary atonement. As you just shared, Christy, you knew someone who uh, would probably identify as Protestant, if not evangelical Protestant. And uh, doctrinally speaking, that's not something I'd like to identify myself with. When I think of Protestant, I think of the solas of the Reformation, you know, only scripture, only Christ, only grace, only faith. I can get behind those. Okay. Still today, but that's not generally what comes to mind when people think mainstream Protestant or even evangelical now. So we, as Christians, we need to be aware of the fact that these things are happening and it's all because of That's fine. You're good. We're all the same, that we all believe the same. Yes. We understand that, oh, well, I believe that this is what the Bible says, and this is what I believe. This is what my church teaches. Like, they don't understand. They think we're all the same. Absolutely. And that is, I don't want to take too much of a rabbit trail here, but that's important because I was watching this video. It was probably sometime this past year, but um, it was by Ben Shapiro. And I, 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 for one, firmly believe, I'm hoping, I'm praying that he will be one of those fellas that believes in Jesus. In the tribulation. He's so conservative that when it comes to a lot of issues, me and him, like we line up, like yeah. when it comes to our view about, you know, marriage, godly marriage, what God designed, we're in line. When it comes to pro-life, we're in line. And so, and he has very strong uh, belief in the old Testament as the word of God. So he's not, he's not what you would call a liberal Jew or secular Jew. Yeah. He, he's very orthodox, very conservative. However, he doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And he was talking with John MacArthur, he interviewed John MacArthur, and he had a follow-up about it, talking with somebody else. And I don't remember who he was discussing it with, but he said, essentially what I've discovered in talking with this guy named John MacArthur, you know, out front there, big evangelical, a lot of people look up to him, got his own study Bible. Uh, and so he took him as a representative of, of conservative evangelicals. And in a way, I would say he does represent conservative evangelicals in, in a lot of ways, as far as those who would swing more towards the conservative spectrum. I think that most people probably could say, I agree with John MacArthur. Um, I don't agree with him on a number of things. Yeah. But, um, when it comes to John MacArthur's view, basically what makes a Christian different from a Jew, and this is all Ben Shapiro's take, by the way, what I'm saying now was John MacArthur believes in Jesus. And I don't, that's really the only difference because John MacArthur believes that works are necessary. This is what Ben Shapiro said. He understood that John MacArthur is basically saying you have to work your way into heaven. He said, yeah, I know. He kind of says that it's more of like the fruit of what God does in your life. But he said, as a Jew, I can almost get on board with that and say, okay, I can see it that way too. So we really aren't very different there. A works-based Jew can say, I agree with John MacArthur's take on the gospel. If, 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 a, if a person who is basically like a modern day Pharisee can agree with John MacArthur, that shows John MacArthur's error. Okay. Because that doesn't line up with the teaching of Paul or John or any of the authors of the new Testament. Not at all. It doesn't line up with what Jesus said in John three sixteen. 
So it's interesting that that's what Ben Shapiro thinks. When he thinks evangelical, he thinks it's just about Jesus. If you take out the identity of this guy named Jesus, then really me and John MacArthur are the same. And I would say that's not what the New Testament teaches. There are two divides between a guy like Ben Shapiro and me. One is the identity of Jesus. That's one. He's right about that. Okay. That's the most obvious. Two, it's how you get saved. He says it's works. I say it's grace. And John MacArthur, even though he would say it's grace, he doesn't really grace to you, buddy. Grace to you. There's not a whole lot of grace in the grace to you. It's more like grace to you if, 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 if. And and it's like it's okay to say grace if, but it's if you believe. Like that's the one condition placed upon salvation is if you believe. And he would say, no, it's believe and follow Christ consistently for the rest of your life. And if you fall into egregious sin, then you prove you were never saved in the first place. And so anyways, um, we got off on that rabbit trail, but I think it's an important one. So now we're back in Revelation 4.1 and it reads this way. After this, I looked and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither. And I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Okay, now, tell me honestly, when you see these three things, the door is opened, trumpet, come up here. What are the three things that automatically come to mind? The door of heaven is opened at the rapture. The trumpet is blown at the rapture. Christians go up at the rapture. That's automatically what I think. And you know what's funny? I'll be reading pre-trip guys and they'll say, yeah, it sounds like the rapture, but we shouldn't use this as a verse proving the pre-trip rapture because it's not explicitly teaching that. But here's the thing. I I want y'all to consider this all throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, people represent other things. Okay. People represent other things. When we talk about Jacob in the Old Testament, let's say the book of the prophets, okay, Isaiah, Ezekiel, when it talks about Jacob, most of the time, probably, if you were to do like a study of this in the prophetic writings, when it talks about Jacob, it's not talking about the individual and giving you biographical information about this guy. It's rather referring to his corporate descendants, like the body of people, his people that came through his line. So it's, they're called Jacob, but we're talking about more than just Jacob. And of course, Jesus, Adam, these are other examples. So when we're reading, exactly. So absolutely another one, Israel. Okay. We can think about the person Israel, but generally, if you were to look at the old Testament, most of the time the word Israel is used, it's referring to the people. So when we're, we're talking about John here, yes, absolutely. This is John being taken up. He's having a visionary experience. He's out of the body. Like Ezekiel was out of the body or Isaiah was out of the body. However, I believe that he represents others too. I think that he represents the church. The church has disappeared from this point. Like chapters one through three, church, 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 church. And the last one's Laodicean. That's where we are. That's where we are. And then you get to this next section, which covers the tribulation. And where is the church? It's in heaven. These are people with their crowns on, right? These are people that have received that heavenly reward. Okay. Do believers have crowns in heaven now? They don't. They don't okay, because the Bible says that they are waiting for everyone to finish the race before this grand celebration takes place, which means when they're described here as having crowns, this is not something that happened literally 2000 years ago. This is something that will literally happen in the future. 
John is seeing the future. It's what it says here in uh, verse number one at the very end. I will show thee things which must be hereafter. So when John goes up, I think that he is a type, a representation of the church going up in the rapture. And when he gets there, he sees the body of priests, the 24 elders. I believe that they are representatives of the church. Uh, why do I believe that? Well, it does say, and I'll show you this real quick. Uh, it's in chapter five, verse number eight. When he had taken the book, the four beasts and 20 and four elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. So these are not just Christians. These are overcoming believers. And that's what we'll talk about chapters one through three. These are people who have the privilege of being representatives of the church. This is reigning with Christ. And that's what we see at the very end in the eternal state. You have the kings of the nations and then you have the nations. So is every single person a king? No, you have the kings over the nations. Okay. That's how anybody would naturally read it. Uh, but in verse nine, they sang a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof for thou was slain and hast redeemed who us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and has made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. Who's going to be reigning on the earth? Angels? No, we are the church. It says in Hebrews chapter one that the kingdom was not given to the angels. They, they were not given to inherit things. It, it was actually the firstborn son, Christ, okay, who has existed for all eternity. He created everything and he came into the world to redeem us. He has all things in his hands. He's the heir of all creation. And because we are one with him by virtue of the incarnation and the Holy Spirit, um, we can participate in this inheritance. And so he gives it not to the angels because he didn't become an angel. He became a human. It says that in Hebrews chapter two. So all of these things, you know, in the New Testament, they connect to one another. And you better understand one pa passage if you understand the others. But uh, the point is, these people who have their crowns, these are church saints. Okay. The bride of Christ. They've been taken up in the rapture. How do we know that? Because they're in heaven. Okay. They're in heaven and they're receiving these crowns. Why are they in heaven? Verse one tells you the answer. The door was opened. Come up here. And isn't exactly that the same thing we talked about from John chapter 14. And John 14, he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you fatherless, as the Greek would say. But I'm going to come and I'm going to take you back to be with me where I am. And you'll be with me forever. You're never going to leave my side after that. So the same author who wrote those verses in John 14 is writing this here. This is the fulfillment of that. After the church age. As a part of this apocalyptic narrative, John is representing, embodying the whole body of believers who were taken up to heaven. And so I believe this is a clear indication of a preacher of rapture. I wouldn't base my whole case on it, but I'm going to tell you that when I read this passage, the first thing that popped into my mind was, this is the rapture. I mean, without reading any commentary, by the way, the first thing that popped into my mind was rapture. I was in high school when I first read this and I was like, this is the rapture. And then I read the commentaries like, oh, okay, a lot of people think that. And then I got to college and there are all those people, you know, like to argue, you know, like, no, 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 no. And, and I said, look, I don't know how many times I've read this verse, but every time I read it, I'm convinced of the same thing all over. So this is key in understanding the order of events, rapture, Revelation 4.1. Now, if it was just by itself, it wouldn't be a whole lot, maybe. But if you take this with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 
when you take this with Revelation 3, which promises that we will be kept out of that hour of trial that's to come on the whole earth, it, it syncs up with it perfectly. So we are not here for the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls. Okay, so there might be different views about, okay, when do the seals start? Okay, some people think the seals start whenever the Antichrist signs that treaty with Israel. That's when the seals are opened. That's possible. Okay, I'm still open to that. Okay, I'm not sure about it because honestly, that's one of those technical details that is not very important to me. But some people say it starts right there at the beginning of the seven years. Some people say the rapture happens and the seals are opened immediately after the rapture. So even though the Antichrist has not signed his covenant with Israel yet, so technically the seven years hasn't kickstarted, the seals are already being opened. So that would be sort of like an interlude between the rapture and the signing of the covenant, some place the seals right there. To me, that's reasonable too. I don't really know which one. I've, in fact, I've made an argument for both, and I still think that I can make an argument for both. So to me, all that we can really say confidently is the rapture comes first. The rapture comes before the seals. People who put the seals before the rapture, I know some pre-trip people who'll say, well, the rapture will definitely happen before the Antichrist shows up. So they're very confident about that. They're very confident that we will be taken before the seven years of the tribulation, but they think that the seals are happening now. They'll say the reason the world is really bad is because the seals are already being opened. And they think that you might want to prep for that because the seals are pretty bad and they're not finished being opened yet. But I disagree with that because when the seals are opened, as we have already looked at, who is in heaven? Believers who have received their crowns. That hasn't happened yet. Okay, not according to the promise of scripture. So I would say that we have things similar, reminiscent of the seals. Because, yeah, we have war and we have famine, pestilence and those things. And that does, um, that does seem unique for our time because it's worldwide in distribution. Okay, this isn't like regional. Okay, with COVID, it reminds us that we're all connected. Okay, a very contagious strain of any disease can spread all the world in a matter of hours. So this is something unique to our time. I think that that will play a a role in the seals being open for sure. When it talks about pestilence and disease and it, it being worldwide in effect, but we're not quite there yet. Okay. It's going to culminate in that. Yes, Sandy. I've heard um, some people say like, the church will go through the seals because the church needs to be purged because it's become like way out of sand. Church was so weak and we're not having an influence anymore. So it's like purging the church and, and healing the church before we're ready to go up to heaven. Here's the problem with that, though, um, and this is something that requires an, an informed reading of the Old Testament. But if you read the Old Testament, um, a purging effect certainly is going to happen in the tribulation, and it is for the Jewish people. I mean, it's very clear that the Jews will be purged during that time. However, this requires one to understand that the church and the Jewish people are distinct from one another. The church right now is undergoing a purging. And that's what chapters one through three in Revelation are all about. He talks about, it. he's like, keep your garments clean. There's persecution happening everywhere. We are one of the rare examples, by the way, of people that have not experienced persecution. Like historically, if you were to look at like people who believe as we do, even during the middle ages, when you had quote unquote Christendom, if we met like this and were discovered, if I was discovered to be teaching this, I would be burned at the stake. Okay, so there's been persecution all throughout this time period. We're, you know, one of those highlights. Okay, you know, one, one of those, um, you could say, yes, we're an anomaly. Yes, absolutely. 
Um, so this purging effect has been going on ever since Jesus left. I mean, the first thing that was poured out on the church was persecution from their Jewish neighbors and then the Roman empire. And then the medieval church in the name of God persecuted Bible believers. Okay. So we've been dealing with this purging effect for the past 2000 years. Um, so I can't see anything in scripture that gives us the purpose of the tribulation as purging church age believers. Um, in fact, I see the opposite. I see them out of the equation. I see them at like chapter four, chapter five here. They're in heaven at this point. So the time of their testing is already done. They've already been judged. They've already been judged. Absolutely. So their sins have already been paid for and they've already been tested as disciples. And that's what chapters one through three are about. Now, when the rapture happens, this is the sad thing. The time of testing is over. Now, in a way that's positive, if you've been holding up well under the test, if you've been honoring God, then you know you'll receive reward. It's a good thing. Like I'm done. Whew, man, I worked hard and now it's over, right? But if you're not, let's say you are compromising your faith. You're being like the world. When the time of testing is over, it means you failed the test. You're still saved. You're bought by the blood of Christ. You have entrance into the kingdom by virtue of that alone. However, there's no more chance for you to go back and live the way you could have. Yeah, I, I think that scripture makes it pretty clear that all our tears will be wiped away. So no one's going to be sad in the eternal state. But and, and see, that's that's the thing. Is it so apart apart from like the subject of a, a person not believing in Jesus and blowing it in that sense? OK, if we're talking about a believer who can blow it, not by losing their salvation, because right. uh, that's not possible. But by living a life of sin, which is possible, they warn against it all throughout the New Testament. You have to close your eyes to not see that. Um, there will be a moment of regret. Okay, That regret, I don't believe, should be interpreted in light of our current experiences. We're going to be in glorified bodies at that point. So what will regret be like Like at the, the throne Okay, when there's a loss? And Paul warns about that. He's like, you don't want to regret that. Okay, You don't want to stand ashamed. John in 1 John 2 says, you don't want to stand ashamed. Okay, before the Lord. So how will we experience that? It won't be the same like we experience now, I, I don't believe, because again, we're we're gonna be in glorified bodies at this point. Um, Jesus is not going to have to tell us something we already know. Uh, we're gonna have our eyes opened. I think that that in itself will be enough. That will be its own rebuke, is that we will now realize, we'll have no argument with God. We'll not complain about, okay, well, God, I didn't get what I thought I deserved. There will be no complaints. Okay, there will need be no if ands or buts because we will know exactly where we failed and we'll know how keenly we failed. And and then you'll have like I've said before the overcomers who they're in glorified bodies too. That means even though if relatively speaking they honored God and they're, you know, worthy of a reward, they'll be able to look back on their life and see it from God's perspective. Now, if you feel bad about your sin now, imagine what it's going to look like looking back and thinking what that kind of sin looks like from God's viewpoint, because we'll have that view. We'll be able to see things clearly. So I don't know how all that's going to go down. You know, people have wondered, how is God going to deal with this? Is he going to like have people come up and stand before him? You know, how is that going to work in terms of how many millions of believers there are? 
I don't know how that's going to work. Okay. I don't know how time works in heaven and I don't know how emotions are experienced by people in glorified bodies. I doubt that there'll be a line. I think heaven's got to be more efficient than that. Um, but the point is, I think that some people take this too far when they discuss the reprimanding of believers at the judgment seat. Um, and, and some people have gone as far as say there'll be a punishment. I, I don't believe that. Um, I believe that we've already had uh, Jesus bear our sins on the cross. He's been punished for us. There, there, so any punishment, if you want to call it that, will simply be a loss of something that you could have had. Will you live with that regret forever? No. I think that once you get into the eternal state, you will be perfectly happy with what you have. Now, is it conceivable for some people to be more happy? Yes. So think of it in terms of a spectrum of happiness. Everybody's happy. No one has any sadness, but some people have a fuller experience. Um, that's what scripture depicts, but I don't really know more than that. And there's no need to speculate about it. Now I want to look at one more verse here. If you'll take your Bibles and turn to chapter six, we've been talking about the seals a bit. Again, we're going to look at these, uh, verse by verse, uh, when we get through with this series, but in chapter six, verse number 12, we have the opening of the sixth seal. And this is important because it really does have a lot to do with your view of the rapture. So Revelation 6, 12, it says, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains and mighty men and every bondman and every freeman hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand. Now let's talk about verse 17. The great day of his wrath is come. Now, So this is what will be said by the pre-wrath people. They would say that the sixth seal doesn't, it doesn't involve the wrath of God, but it comes before it. And the seventh seal, which involves the pouring out of the, the, the first tr uh, judgments, the trumpets, the blowing of the trumpets, they would place the trumpets and the bowls in that final quarter. So they would extend the seals, I would say, and uh, pre-tribbers would make them more compact. So a pre-tribber like, let's say, Tim LaHaye would say these seals take place within the first maybe 24 months of the tribulation. Some would place them in a gap between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. So it wouldn't even be part of the seven years. But the point is they are pretty compact from a pre-tribulation standpoint, while from a pre-wrath standpoint, um, I think that they compact the trumpets and the bowls. They would take the trumpets and the bowls and instead of extending them over the whole seven years, like I believe, I believe the trumpets and the bowls, they are going to last pretty much the whole tribulation. Again, it's possible they may not start till uh, a year into the tribulation, perhaps year and a half, but uh, they're going to more or less span the whole time period. While pre-wrath people would, they'd put them in that last quarter. Okay, so they would argue that the seals cannot be part of the wrath. And that's what pre-tribulational believers have always been saying. They've been saying that we will not be here for the four horsemen of the apocalypse, for example, um, which are the first four seals. We won't be here for that because that's the wrath of God. 
And I think they got a good case for that. But some people, the pre-wrath people, in fact, in verse 17 would say, oh, the great day of his wrath doesn't begin until the sixth seal. So that means what you have before isn't God's wrath. So that's something we'll go through after the sixth seal's open. That's stuff we're exempt from, like the trumpets and the bowls. And they make their case that way. Um, however, I don't want to get into the technical stuff because we need to wrap it up at this point. We're all hungry. But in verse 17, when it says, for the great day of his wrath is come, the Greek here is a aorist indicative. So this is a past tense. It's saying it's already come. It's already been here. This is the revelation of it. So when the rapture happens, okay, there will be lots of people, Jed, stop doing that. There will be lots of people who come up with some way of explaining it away. There will be lots of things going on in the world that are crazy, but people will still, unfortunately, in general, not come around to the belief that Jesus is the one and this is prophecy being fulfilled. The majority of people are going to be prepped and ready to believe in the Antichrist when he shows up. So it won't be until the opening of the sixth seal that there is a moment where light shines bright. And I personally believe there are other pre-tribbers that believe this. I think that at the sixth seal, God will roll back heaven literally and people will see his throne. It will be a global phenomenon. Everybody sees it. Don't know how God's going to accomplish that, but he created everything from nothing. He can do that, but he is going to do this and people will see it and they will cower in fear. Now this will stop the, the clouds. I think will roll back because I don't think it's open the whole time. So it opens and then it shuts. Now this will give people a wonderful opportunity. There will be people who are preaching saying, do you know who you just saw that terrified you so much that you were wanting the rocks to fall on you? That was the God that's given you another shot. But there will be other people that they, you know, it happens, guys. People forget things. It, yeah, it's, it's like, you know, 9-11. 9-11 happens. Everybody's in church. There's something about this event that shook them. But they didn't go all the way and believe in Jesus. I think that that will happen to these people. It doesn't say here that these people are coming to Jesus for forgiveness of sin. It says they see something that terrifies them and all they could do is flee from it. It's like God overpowers their senses with indisputable evidence of his sovereignty and they have to acknowledge it. However, it's not God's design to overpower anyone. So God's not going to say, oh, you, you crawled under the rocks. I guess I'll let you in. now." No. All right, so the door closes, you could say. And now when everything's calmed down, there's not a face looking at you from the sky, okay? And months go by. It's seven years, people. Months go by. And then the Antichrist appears and he's doing all these miracles and there's all these things doing that's wowing your senses, okay? It's a battle for your mind at this point. And it's gonna make people question, I believe, what has happened before. Like before, like there was a second there where we were absolutely on our knees Okay, just like they will all bow before God one day. Okay, but will that be give? Will that be given to God as a sincere act of faith? No, it was brought on by the overwhelming power of God. Uh, this is something I want to talk about at another point. But Jesus talked about this. He says, if the people of Sodom and Gomorrah saw the mighty works that I do in your presence, they would have repented. Now a lot of us are like, well, gosh, why didn't he do that? Like, surely he wants them to repent. But I think if he would have done that for the people of Sodom their repentance wouldn't have been genuine. I think there's a point where God can overpower anyone into doing what he wants. There's a point at which he can make people get on their knees, but it would annul and do away with faith. 
Because this is not an act where, like, right now, am I seeing anything? Have I seen, I've seen miracles happen in my life in that I've seen God answer prayers, yes? Let's say I've even seen a miracle. I've seen somebody get up and walk around, okay? But it's still something that involves faith for me. Like, it could be explained in some other way. You could easily say, that's a charlatan, that's this or that. So God gives us enough to believe, guys. He gives us plenty. And he convicts us, but he's never going to say something so loud that you can't hear something else. Whenever God was in the garden and Adam and Eve were being tempted, was God standing next to Adam and Eve? No. Now, do you think that if he would have stood next to Adam and Eve and put his hand on Adam's shoulder and looked at him, gave him a hard stare, Adam, you still have this choice, but uh, if you do, I'm going to smite you. Do you think Adam would have done it? No. But did God do that? He didn't because he didn't, he didn't want to remove Adam's will, his freedom. So I think that God is going to show up and show, and show his, his glory to these people. It's going to let them know that, look, I mean business, and this is not something you can explain away. Here it is. And the people are going to get down on their knees. But after that, once that effect has been removed, once again, it's choice making time. And when Jesus comes back the final time and he fully fulfills what he shows here, a glimpse of his face in heaven, when he shows up that next time, once again, every knee shall bow. Everybody's going to be crawling under the rocks again, y'all. But I think he does it at the very beginning of the tribulation or towards the beginning at the least, because he wants people to know indisputably that this is from him and that they have no explanation that can undo what they just saw in the sky. But again, guys, you know, whenever the glow of his glory disappears and the clouds roll back and things seem to be going on relatively normal, a lot of people are going to say, whatever, maybe I can believe the Antichrist, his view of what happened. They, they won't be able to forget it, but they might just explain it away. Other people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they won't recognize him that way. So again, it's a battle of perspectives there. So anyways, we'll talk more about that when we get to the sixth seal, but uh, I think that covers enough of the basic formatting of the book, and uh, that'll give us some clarity heading forward. God bless y'all, and thank you for listening.